Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. What do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about Ukraine. Ukraine, and then Ukraine some more. All that and just a little bit more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, the U.S. Freedom Convoy has begun. It's somewhere between two to 7,000 miles. It's close to... I mean, not miles. Two to 7,000 vehicles. And it's close to about 20 miles long. Maybe longer. Uh, it is currently making its way through either Missouri or Kentucky as I speak. It's kind of hard to it, pin it down. It's kind of really difficult to pin down where exactly they are and how many there are of it. Um, but they're planning to go all the way to D.C. And there's a lot of them. So I guess that was to be expected. Because the United States is a bigger country than Canada population-wise. And we have more truckers. So that was to be expected. It There was talk. Of the convoy reaching DC in time for the State of the Union and I don't know if they'll be able to get there in time but shoot if they're uh, a couple hours ago they were in Oklahoma and I saw a video where they were in Arizona so I, I don't know maybe they maybe they will get there but the State of the Union's tomorrow so they have a what 24 hours I guess to get there but they have to sleep so Anyway, they'll, they'll get there when they get there, and they're on their way to D.C. now, and there's a lot of them, and they're only, what, roughly halfway there? Missouri is basically halfway across, because they started in California, so halfway there, there's thousands of them, and they're multiple miles long, so we'll see how big this gets by the time it finishes snowballing at D.C., and we'll see how my government responds to it this protest and see if they do better than Canada did but uh, I imagine it'll be harder to do worse that's what I imagine we'll have to see but that's the freedom convoy meanwhile Russia has placed their nuclear forces on high alert and Belarus has reiterated its willingness to host Russian nuclear weapons should the situation call for it and this is thrown everyone else into a, a tizzy, to say the least. Uh, this is what a lot of people are focusing on, and part of the fears of World War Three potentially starting over this. And, well, I guess it's warranted. I mean, this the first time we've had nuclear forces on high alert in quite a while, and there's a lot of fear-mongering regarding Russia, so... The two go hand in hand with fears of World War Three, but I have a strong feeling that no nukes are going to be deployed on Ukraine because Russia's winning and they're winning soundly. Like they're just dismantling the Ukrainian military. It's comical to me, 
because I live over here in America. But if you're Ukrainian, this is a tragedy. But I guess that's why I call it the Ukrainian tragedy to begin with. That being said, nuclear forces are on high alert. And because of this, a lot of other countries are now on high alert as well. Speaking of Ukraine, they have now made attempts to join the EU on top of their attempt to join NATO. So you can probably guess where that's going to get them in the eyes of Russia. Uh, Especially now that the first round of peace talks between Russia and Ukraine have been held. So something like that would definitely lead the Russians to believe that Ukraine is not negotiating in good faith. But then again, if you're Ukrainian, you want to take zero chances. You want any guarantee you can get that your country's going to survive. But that being... See, this is why I call it a tragedy. It's something precisely like this, which is why I call it a tragedy. I mean, why wouldn't Ukraine do this? Why wouldn't they? I mean, they're, they're already being invaded by Russia. It's not, it's not like your relationship with Russia can get any worse than them sending troops into your country. So from that point, why wouldn't you look for some sort of guarantee that someone is going to come help you? You would, If you had the opportunity to do it, to join NATO, to join the EU, to get some sort of aid, like, I'm talking boots on the ground, not, oh, we're going to send you guns and love <laughs> and prayers. Something physical that you can use. If you had the opportunity to get that and you're Ukrainian, of course you're going to take that opportunity. But in doing that, you just, in the Russian mind, you prove to Russians what they already believe about you, which is that they're not gonna be able to negotiate with you. Negotiations are meaningless. At least that that's the that's clearly the conclusion that's been drawn by Russia at this point as they've been trying to negotiate for what since 2014 2014 when the situation between these two first began when the coup in Maidan happened and you had uh what was it Zukovich, Ivanovich. Uh, I forget. I'm blanking on his name, but the the old guy who was in charge before, who was overthrown and essentially replaced with Zelensky in the Maidan coup. When that happened, and the Donbass essentially seceded from Ukraine, and Crimea went the step further of voting to become part of Russia. When Ever since then, you've had Russia trying negotiations. And you got the Minsk agreements in. But then no one wanted to enforce the Minsk agreements on Ukraine. No one put pressure on them except for Russia. And Ukraine said no. So, for eight years, that's the case. Now we've gotten to the point where we're at armed conflict. So, diplomacy in the eyes of the Russians has already failed and they've they tried for eight years can't say they didn't try whatever you may feel about the russians 
diplomacy in their eyes has failed. So now, when you have failed diplomacy, the other option left is armed conflict. So Russia doing what is the natural, logical next step, maybe not natural, but the logical next step, if you're trying to resolve a conflict between Ukraine and the rebels in the Donbass, and diplomacy isn't working, well, now you use force. So that's the logical next step. And then as soon as that step is taken, you now have Ukraine, who, now they're being invaded, their logical next step is to look for help. But by taking that logical next step, Russia then concludes, we cannot negotiate with these people. That's, that's going to be the takeaway. They're not approaching these peace talks in good faith. That's undoubtedly going to be one of the takeaways that Russia is going to have from this, which is why I don't see peace talks as being the way this gets resolved. And no one's necessarily at fault for taking these actions. You can see why each, when you understand where each party is coming from and you understand the things that they're focused on, and you understand the context as to how we got here and the context of what the situation is, a civil war in Ukraine, you can see right up to Russia recognizing the rebels in the Donbass and Ukraine continuing to shell them because they're in a civil war and that's in part of Ukraine. They want it back. Russia says these are independent countries. So once you bomb an independent country that you don't think is an independent country, now Russia's invading you. So, right up to this point, when you understand each side of this conflict, you can see how we got here. And you can see that it's nothing radical. No radical steps were taken. It's a series of events from everyone doing the logical next thing. Uh, even with regards to Ukraine wanting to join NATO. Sure, you could say it's a blunder, but you can see why they would want to do that. They have, If your government is hostile towards Russia, because that, that's what the Zelensky government was, they're hostile towards Russia. If your government is hostile towards Russia, the last thing you want to do is to be sitting there with nothing when you have the Russian military at your doorstep. So what you're going to want is to join the massive military alliance that's already there, that's right next door to you, that has the sole purpose of fighting Russia, or, or at the very least opposing Russia. That's their sole purpose, to oppose Russia. If you're going to be in a generally anti-Russian government in Ukraine... That's an excellent organization that you'd want to join. It, it suits your interests and gives you security guarantees. So why wouldn't you? You would take the offer. But in doing that, you create the you feed into the series of events that leads one side to distrust the other, and then new steps keep getting taken to continuously feed into this negative feedback loop of logical actions leading to disaster. And now we're at the disaster. 
which is why I call this a tragedy. The Ukrainian tragedy. It looks like this tragedy is entering its final act now, and we'll cover it. Uh, there's, there's a lot to cover, but we'll cover it. Uh, but meanwhile, the... Well, that, that's uh, Ukraine. Let me see this. Let me see this. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, COVID-19 mysteriously disappears. I wonder where it went. <laughs> Only time will tell. But uh, there's that. China uses the Ukraine situation to set an example uh, as to what will happen to Taiwan. Uh, so there's that domino, if you remember me saying Taiwan will not be the domino for a major war. It'll be Ukraine due to the circumstance. And now we have war in Ukraine and suddenly Taiwan's being brought back up. The war in Ukraine isn't over just yet, but you can already see Ty Taiwan coming into the crosshairs of China right now. China can declare war unilaterally. See, Russia wasn't going to do that without some other provocation on the part of Ukraine, which they got in the part of Ukraine shelling the Donbass region in blatant disregard of the Minsk agreements, which stipulated that they would stop doing that. So, now you have Ukraine leading to the domino of Taiwan. And once Ukraine falls, Russia has access to Transnistria. They cover the southern flank of Belarus. They gain a, the control, really, of the Black Sea through the long coastline. That is Ukraine. The Sea of Azov becomes an... Uh, a Russian lake once again essentially the domino of Ukraine is almost fallen and we're starting to see some of the other dominoes lined up to fall with it and we'll see how things go there's always the chance that the dominoes don't fall there's always the chance that I am wrong as I have been sometimes but uh, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. You, you never know with a country until they do something. But in this instance, we might be witnessing something huge uh, unfolding right before our eyes. Even bigger than what we're already watching, which is huge enough on its own. So we'll definitely have to make sure we're not too focused on Ukraine because there's the rest of the world out there doing things as well. That's China. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, I keep saying meanwhile, but uh, in Ukraine, the death toll for civilians is reportedly somewhere around 300 to 500 people so far. The war isn't over, so, so far. But interestingly enough, as the casualty figure stands now, those numbers make this the first major war since the first world war to have a higher military casualty rate than civilian and it's been a while since we have one of those uh since world war one it's been civilians who've just borne the brunt of warfare where before that it was always the military and it seems we're heading back or at the very least in this instance specifically it is 
military forces bearing the brunt of conflict. So, definitely an interesting contrast to the way in which wars have been fought up to this point, and perhaps this will create some sort of diverging point from where we can analyze warfare using uh, this as a comparison with regards to civilian versus military death rates in the conflict. And I'll get more into the civilian side of this later. And lastly, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan has called for peace and restraint in the Ukraine war. And I, I just found it interesting that they're the ones to say this. Uh, but yeah, so we have lots of, lots of interesting things going on around the world. And lots of interesting responses. But for today, it is the Ukraine show. So, we'll get into the meat of the episode in just a moment. Alright, it's time to get into the meat of the episode. So, the Russo-Ukrainian War. On Thursday of last week, Russia invaded Ukraine essentially breaking down all diplomatic relations. And we have the first major war since the breakup of Yugoslavia back in the 1990s in Europe. And here's what we have. The Russian attack has taken the form of three major offensives. One from Crimea in the south, one from Belgorod in the east, and one from Klinsky, uh, which is the part of Russia that juts outwards towards Belarus, uh, and even some parts of southern Belarus itself, uh, that part is coming into Ukraine from the north. So, since then, Belarus claims to have no part in this military operation, as the Russians are taken to calling it. They call it a military operation, not an invasion. But, uh, I'm going to be calling it an invasion because that's what it is. Uh, technically both are true, but we're going with the invasion. So, uh, <laughs> since then, we have Russia calling it a military operation. But I am of the belief that Russian troops, despite what Belarus claims, I'm of the belief that Russian troops did move through Belarus because there are many physical barriers that would impede the troop movement. If they went into Ukraine gunning for Kiev from just Russian territory. Uh, when you look at a map, uh, it becomes very clear that it'd be more beneficial to go for Kiev moving through Belarus than it would to try to do that from Ru exclusively from Russian territory. And when you look at where the Russian troops are currently occupying in the parts of northern Ukraine, you can see that, uh, yeah, they went through Belarus. Uh, I just, I don't know how else to tell you. Um, so that, I'm of the firm belief that they did, in spite of what Belarus says. I think that's just sort of, uh, would it be fair to call it misinformation? Misinformation? At the very least, a sort of confusion tactic to keep people 
well, off balance, because it certainly threw me off when uh, I, I saw where the Russian troops were. And then Belarus goes, yeah, they didn't move. We didn't let them move through our territory. And uh, I was confused for a little bit. And then I came to the conclusion, they're lying. So <laughs> that's where I am with regards to the northern offensive moving towards Kiev. But like I said, if they had come through just Russia to try to get to Kiev, um, there's lots of physical barriers that would impede their troop movements. Barriers such as the Chernobyl radiation zone, where there was actually some skirmishing there. It was kind of cool to look at, you know, when you know that it's Chernobyl. Uh, although it did risk uh, hitting, the fighting there did risk hitting the cemented nuclear reactor. The, it's, but uh, the reactor is intact, and there's not more radiation that's going to be spilled out. But, um, it was pretty cool to see. I mean, that's, that, that just tells you how removed from this situation I am, where I'm talking about it's cool to see. But seeing those troops moving through this area is just something you never thought you would see. And it's definitely a novelty. And you know what, I'll say it, it was cool to look at. But, um... So there's the Chernobyl Radiation Zone, which they've gone through already. Uh, there's the Pripyat Marshes. Uh, this is terrible terrain for, say, armored vehicles, or vehicles in general, which is the mainstay of Russia's military right now, uh, especially given that they're a land power. So armored vehicles is kind of Russia's thing. Everyone knows Russia for their tanks. And everyone knows Russia for being a mechanized, a highly mechanized army at that. So these marshes would just be the antithesis of Russia's entire land doctrine. So that's a second huge barrier. But the biggest obstacle that I think that Russia would encounter if they had invaded Ukraine, trying to get to Kiev but they only went through Russia's territory exclusively. The biggest obstacle that I see that they would have had to face after getting past uh, Chernobyl and going through the Pripyat marshes would be the Dnieper River. That's This is the, the big river, the major river that runs straight through the middle of Ukraine. It's kind of wavy, but it's the river that the capital city of Kiev is on. That river is a really big one, and crossing it would be really dubious at best if they try to do it in Ukraine right next to the capital of Ukraine. That's asking for trouble. So those three barriers tell me that they went through Belarus. I, without looking on a, on a map of where they are, because uh, I... I came to this conclusion before looking at the map of where Russia had occupied territory in Ukraine. Just going off these barriers here, I came to the conclusion they went through Belarus. And then I saw the map, and it's like, yeah, that they went through Belarus there. Nah. Belarus is straight up lying when they say that Russian troops didn't go through Belarus, because there's no way that salient pops up by itself. But I'll, I'll digress on that point. Um, so, you have 
all those barriers that are easily bypassed if you go through Belarus. Because moving through Belarus would enable you to bypass the Pripyat marshes altogether, meaning you'd only have to go through a little bit of the radiation zone from Chernobyl, because Chernobyl is on the eastern bank of the Dnieper River. So if you're on the west side, because uh, you cross the river in Belarus, because the river runs up through Belarus as well, you cross the river in Belarus, and then you go down south towards Kiev. You're bypassing Chernobyl. You're bypassing the Pripyat marshes. And you've crossed the river already, meaning you have a straight shot to the city that is the capital of Ukraine, Kiev. It, it's also the shortest route there as well. When you look at uh, the borders and how things go, Kiev is right next to the Belarusian border. Like, it's... A it's a longer distance from Kiev to the nearest border with Russia than it is Kiev to Belarus's southern border. So that's the quickest way to get to Kiev is through Belarus. There's lots of barriers if you don't go through Belarus that you would have to deal with. So conclusion, Russia went through Belarus and now Kiev is in danger. And that's the way it is. So, there's also, in the southeast of Ukraine, the city of Mariupol has essentially been encircled by Russian forces that have moved from Crimea to link up with the troops in the Donbass. And, uh, just yesterday, they were at least 80 to 100 miles away from this. They've closed the gap already. They closed the gap already, and this city is now encircled. Uh, there are parts of the Azov Battalion there, the infamous Azov Battalion, which is a battalion of literal neo-Nazis. Like, we're not talking political slander in the United States, where people who disagree with you are labeled as Nazis. No, we're talking people who openly fly the thunderbolts of the SS as their banner. Like, these are the people we're talking about. So, neo-Nazis encircled in Mariupol, and now they're holding the the civilians there hostage, and Russia's reportedly telling the people there to sort of go to a basement, or take cover, because we're coming in, whether the Azov Battalion likes it or not, and we'll see how that goes. Um, if it doesn't go well, we could see the civilian casualty rate jump significantly from what it is now which is only a, a couple hundred. We'll have to see how things go with that one. But Mariupol is encircled, and the southern front and the eastern front from Russia's two offensives are now linked up. So, we'll, that's a major strategic move and a major strategic gain as well, linking up these two offensives. Because now you have a unified line. Because before you had multiple salients pushing in, they had to support themselves. Now you have the unified line. And as of the sea itself, that the brigade is named after, Azov has now become a Russian lake. Uh, so there's that's the situation there. There's another one. Because... Crimea isn't the only place Russia's pushing from. Um, 
they've taken about half of Luhansk in their offensive from the east. They've taken half of Luhansk, and this is the entire territory of Luhansk. Uh, when we're looking at the oblasts or sort of states within Ukraine, the state of Luhansk in Ukraine, half of that is now under Russian control. Uh, it's been taken over for the People's Republic of Luhansk. They haven't made much movement in Donetsk, but that was to be expected because this is where the bulk of the Ukrainian army was before the fighting began between Ukraine and Russia. It makes more sense to go around those areas than to fight them directly because uh, they were fighting trench warfare. I mean, you'd be running straight into trenches. That's a terrible idea as anybody who fought in the Western Front of World War I could tell you. Charging trenches is a terrible idea even with modern weaponry, because the other side has modern weaponry too. It's just a bad idea. So the Russians have chosen not to do it, which is why very little progress has been made in the Donbass region itself, and has instead you see massive offensive towards Kiev, massive offensive up from Crimea. You have uh, a major battle around Kharkov in the northeast of Ukraine which is where another one of the major offensives from Russia is coming from. Um, uh, yes, that's another one. I was about, just about to get to it. Uh, a salient that's east of Kharkov, because they're going around it. They're, they've met heavy resistance there, but they're going around it now. There's a salient east of Kharkov that's moving south and is en route to meet up with the Russian troops that are pushing northwards from that same Crimean offensive that just met up with the troops in the Donbass. So you're looking at... Uh, this, this move here is threatening to encircle vast swaths of the Ukrainian army, as the bulk of them have been fighting and have been deployed to the east, not just to fight the rebels on the contact line, but to fight the main Russian invasion force coming through the rebel republics and coming around Kharkov itself. But now you have Russia in a massive pincer movement about to encircle probably somewhere around half of the Ukrainian military. I mean, I would say half, but they'd have to, uh, my personal belief is they'd have to encircle Kharkov as well to get to that halfway point. Because Ukraine's army isn't all that big. I mean, it's only about, what, somewhere between 150 to 200,000? I think it's 200,000. I think it's 200,000. But with encirclements like these, when, with rapid movements like these from multiple angles... And it looks like they're about to lose half their force. Because you can't just abandon the trenches in the Donbass, otherwise they're going to get overrun. And now you'll have to deal with another salient from Russia. They have to hold that defensive position. It's There are no geographic barriers in Ukraine, aside from the Pripyat marshes and the Dnieper River. There are no barriers in Ukraine. They don't, they don't have mountains. The, the mountains are on the wrong side of the country. 
They're, they're in the west of the country on the border with Romania and Hungary. So if they abandon those trenches, they have no defensive line. But if they stay, they're going to get encircled. And it looks like they're going to get encircled by this double pincer move for up from the Ukrainian, uh, not the Ukrainian, up from the Crimean offensive that met up with the Donbass, and from the salient that is east of Kharkov moving south. This is going to be terrible, absolutely terrible for the Ukrainian military, as if it hasn't suffered enough demoralizing losses, as is uh, Kharkov their air force, cough cough their navy. Uh, I, it's really shocking to watch because this is day five. All right, this, well, that's there's a little bit of talk about Russia getting bogged down or their advance coming to a halt. This is day five. Uh, going into day six, by the time a, a lot of you are going to be hearing this podcast, because I'm a bit late today trying to gather up all this but you have all this in five days and you have another salient that's pushing in the north of ukraine it's pushing west towards kiev this is sort of west of kharkov uh west of kharkov uh sort of in the north of Ukraine. It's pushing westwards, even further westwards, towards Kiev. And when it gets there, it will create yet another massive encirclement, which will have... Once this encirclement is achieved, it'll be centered around the city of Nizian. Uh, so I've taken to calling it pre preemptively the Nizian Pocket. So that that's what I'll call it once it's there, as the Russians are gunning for Kiev with that salient, and they're re they're reportedly already in the suburbs of Kiev. I've seen a couple of videos of them moving through. Uh, sort of, there's a little bit of rubble, a little bit of rubble, excuse me, and they're. It's shocking to see them just casually passing by civilians. Uh, as they're being recorded, it's really jarring to see. It's really jarring to see. Uh, it's a good thing, okay? It's good that they're not just attacking the civilians outright. It's definitely not what you'd expect with a war. Um, so, again, it'll be interesting to see how future conflicts sort of compare to this one. And it'll be interesting to see comparisons between this and past conflicts, too. So that's something probably in the works already, among other people. Uh, but as these multiple offensives are on their way towards Kiev, and one that is already there is in the process of encircling the city, and the Ukrainian military is fighting desperately to keep that from happening, but they aren't pushing the Russians back very much. And that's what the troops Russia already has there. Now they have another group en route to the city that's probably going to loop around the back. And by the back, I mean the south. And that's going to cut the city off from the rest of the country. 
In Kiev itself, civilians are now reportedly being armed with rifles and machine guns to defend the city to the death, essentially. There's been reports of American-built bioweapons labs being bombed throughout Ukraine. There's even a story about the this ghost of Kiev, uh, and there's also reports that that story is a hoax made using footage from a flight simulator game that's essentially being imposed on a, a cloudy sky. So there's a whole bunch of rumors being spread throughout this war, and it's kind of an interesting thing to observe as well, given that we have all this access to information, and yet even today we're still just as prone to rumors and superstitions as we were 200 years ago. So definitely interesting to see, definitely interesting to compare. Then, well, what more can I say with regards to how this war sort of sort of stands when compared to other ones, how this one sizes up to other conflicts of similar stature and size and importance. And this is a very important conflict. But that's what's going on in Kiev itself. Uh, Russia has also reportedly deployed their Chechen special forces uh, north of Kiev, uh, which is pretty significant given that they fought a war against Chechnya in the early 90s. Uh, two wars, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but only time will tell what is and isn't true in this conflict, as is usually the case with most conflicts anyway. But ooh, we'll work with what we got, and we'll, we'll see what we can get, because we have a lot. So let's get into this. And we'll start by talking about what Russia's objectives are in this war that they've, well, initiated. So, their stated aims are to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. Those are their stated intentions. They also intend to hold Nuremberg-style military tribunals once this military operation uh, is complete. So military operation, read invasion. Uh, now the first objective, I'll say, seems pretty legit to me, which is the to demilitarize Ukraine. Seems very legit to me, uh, as from what I'm looking at, seems like we're witnessing the total destruction of the Ukrainian armed forces in real time. I'm talking about a methodical, systematic dismantling of Ukraine's military. Ukraine's air forces were wiped out within hours of hostilities breaking out. Their air force has suffered major losses, but is still functional, if only in a limited capacity. It's still there, but the Ukrainian Navy is now but a memory. I think... If I'm not mistaken, uh, this is another story that I can't necessarily verify myself. But the story is their naval base got hit with a hypersonic missile. Wiped out the entire fleet. So, uh, just wow. Just wow. Because uh, 
the Air Force situation, the Air Defense situation, and the Navy situation that they're dealing with now, that was all day one. That was all day one of the conflict wiped out. So, I mean, I'm not quite sure what the Navy would have done for them, uh, given that this is a land conflict. But that Air Force would have been helpful, uh, and those air defenses would, would have been very helpful as well. Those are gone now, uh, largely. So, Ukraine's military is in it. And even rougher spot than it was in in 2014 when the Russians killed their Air Force the first time and essentially stole their Navy when they took this the port of Sebastopol so uh, and then the rebels slaughtered the Ukrainian army themselves so Ukraine is in a worse position today than it was in back in 2014 but they're definitely probably getting a sense of deja vu right now uh, a much worse deja vu, but deja vu. Uh, but another reason that I believe their objective, uh, which is the demilitarization one, another reason I believe that to be a legitimate objective uh, is the incredible lengths that Russia has gone to to avoid inconveniencing the civilian population of Ukraine. They want to demilitarize Ukraine, not destroy it. So, given that, and the, again, incredible lengths Russia's gone to to avoid inconveniencing the civilian population. I, I can't stress that inconveniencing part enough, because the water and the electricity is still running. The gas pipelines are still intact. I, I, I mean, for heaven's sake... The internet is still up, which is how we're even able to watch this conflict unfolding in, again, in real time. In real time. There's a whole 24-hour live stream of Kiev on YouTube, multiple of them. There's people in alternative media getting interviews with people living in Ukraine. And I even saw one interview with someone who was in Kiev of all places, and there's even TikToks. <laughs> For an all-out invasion, Russia seems to be going very far out of its way to avoid hurting civilians and to avoid disrupting their lives. Now, that comes with the obvious exception of the sound of gunfire and artillery going off in the background, and probably jets flying over your head and helicopters and whatnot. It's war, baby. But at the very least, the civilians aren't the target, and Russia's going out of their way to make sure that they're not collateral damage either. So, if you're a Ukrainian citizen, your country's being invaded, so that's shitty. But this is, in some weird way, a best-case scenario, because you're not the target. Uh, the same could not be said with, say, U.S. invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, where you had massive civilian casualties and massive collateral damages. Even though our target was the military and the government as well, it was much less care was taken 
to avoid harming the civilian populace. So this is, again, very abnormal. This is definitely not the norm with regards to warfare. Uh, at least warfare we've seen so far. Uh, I've never seen this level of care and caution to avoid hurting civilians in war of all I, I'm shocked alright I'm shocked I can barely believe it but thank goodness that it's there because you don't want the norm you don't want the norm uh, and uh, Ukraine's lucky in that regard that they're not getting the norm so we'll we'll see if Russia's able to keep this up. That's definitely something I'd like to see them to continue avoiding to hurt the civilians. Um, uh, we'll see if they can keep it up. Uh, I'm not. I I still can't get over it. But anyway, within hours of the invasion, President Zelensky of Ukraine declared that he was now ready to negotiate. And we talked a little bit about how they're, they've already had the first round of peace talks between him and uh, Ukraine and Russia, and sort of how the logical steps being taken by both sides, uh, you, in this instance it's Ukraine, logical steps being taken by Ukraine have essentially guaranteed that the peace talks are going to die. Because you can't say you want peace and then turn around begging to join the EU so you can get aid to help fight Russia. Uh, even though that's a very logical thing to do, it, it's essentially saying you're not coming to these negotiations and these talks in good faith. Which is why I think it's a bit too late for all that. Uh, and I am now on record being pretty good at predicting Russia's next move and what it's going to be. Uh, though, in spite of that, I cannot say for certain if Russia won't accept the offer. Well, I wrote this before I found out they already had the talks. So I guess I'll just edit this in real time. Uh, I can't say for certain if Russia won't continue the talks. So that that's a better in real time update to my notes which have been rendered obsolete by reality but i think russia's going to continue the talks even though i think it's too late for that i mean thinking about it logically thinking about it logically if russia does continue these talks uh, i imagine Nothing of substance is going to be reached, or at the very least, even if Russia is willing to make certain deals with Ukraine, I don't think they're going to make those deals until after Russia has reached a point in the invasion that they're comfortable with. Uh, encircling Kiev and Kharkov come to mind, as they are two of the biggest points of resistance outside the Donbass, where the fighting started. But... Even if Russia does continue to come back to the table, and again, I'm sort of micro-editing my notes in real time to make up for <laughs> changed reality, 
But even if Russia does continue to come back to the table, what does Ukraine have to offer them? I mean, think about it. What, what does Ukraine have to offer? Because if Ukraine survives this, and I have serious doubts that it will, uh, especially given Putin's statements regarding Ukraine as a basically calling them a fake country, a, a creation of Lenin drawing lines on a map of Russia, saying Ukraine and Russia are essentially one and the same. You don't say that and then let Ukraine be its own country. That seems sort of antithetical, you know? It, it doesn't seem to fit well together to make such a denunciation of Ukraine of Ukraine's existence as a state. Going the great lengths to say that Ukraine and Russia are one and the same with regards to the peoples of Ukraine and Russia... It doesn't make sense to do that in the lead up to war. Then you get war, and then you say we're gonna give, we're gonna let Ukraine be its own country. It it doesn't mesh well. Maybe that's the path that they go down. And again, it's just another sort of misdirection because it's war, baby. So maybe that's what's happening. But I I don't see it. I don't think Ukraine survives this. And even if they make peace with Russia, like, because they are continuing the talks, Russia's continuing the talks, even if they make peace, the strategic situation doesn't change. I.e., the preconditions that led to this war do not change if that's the way the war ends, when you have Ukraine still alive. Because, sure, they won't be able to shell the Luhansk or Donetsk People's Republics anymore. I'd imagine that at the very least, those two territories are going to get the full oblast or state that they're named after. And Russia will likely occupy the border region between them and Ukraine, probably eating up land east of the Dnieper as many people have speculated in the lead-up to this war. But let's say that... It, let's say that that happens. Let's say that happens. I'm trying, trying to get my words together here. Let's say that happens. They won't be able to attack Luhansk or Donetsk, but Luhansk and Donetsk were just a part of the preconditions that led to the war. Uh, they served as the... Casus Belli, the shelling of these two republics that Russia recognizes independence, ultimately served as the event that gave Russia their Casus Belli for war. But if Ukraine survives, there will still be the threat to Russia of Ukraine joining NATO, even if on paper Ukraine says it won't. But Ukraine... If they get crushed in a war and they have no military, well, you're at the mercy of Russia. So why wouldn't you join NATO at that point? Because if you have this peace treaty, then that means all of your border conflicts are essentially going to be resolved through force. So now 
now you can join NATO because you don't have border conflicts, uh, disagreements. You can join NATO and you don't have a military, so you want to join NATO even more. And we mentioned earlier, Zelensky is actively trying to join the EU as well. So even if on paper, Ukraine says that it won't join NATO or that it won't join the EU, uh, what reason would Russia have to believe them? Because the way I see it, Russia has no reason to believe that any agreement reached with Ukraine is going to be honored. And the case in point here is the Minsk agreements. When the conflict first broke out in 2014, Ukraine agreed to the Minsk agreements and never implemented them. They never once reached out to having direct talks between them and the leaders of the People's Republic of Luhansk and Donetsk. Never once reached out to those leaders. Never once enabled limited autonomy. Never once enabled a vote. Uh, elections within Ukraine over the situation. And they didn't stop shelling the parts of Luhansk and Donetsk that the people's republics of those regions controlled. So at every level, they didn't just refuse to implement the Minsk agreements, they actively violated them in the case of the shelling. And this went on for eight years, and Russia kept asking, Ukraine kept denying, and now we're at war. So even if they make peace, and they make and they on paper agree not to join NATO, not to join the EU, and to remain a neutral country. What reason does Russia have to believe them? Because again, just looking at interests of countries, Ukraine has every interest in trying to join these institutions for their own protection, for their own safety. If they're shattered by war, they probably going to want the economic security of being a part of the EU and not on the outside of it. But what reason does Russia have? Because they have interests to go completely against any agreement that they would reach in this treaty on top of Russia not being able to trust them. Why would Russia believe that they would honor these agreements? Because... Ukraine not honoring its obligations as part of the Minsk agreement played a major role in getting to this point. So if Ukraine cannot be trusted to honor the Minsk agreements, then how could Russia trust Ukraine to honor any potential treaty obligations? I, I don't see it. Because simply put, I don't think they can. I do not think Russia can, which is why I am of the opinion that the only way this ends is with the total annexation of Ukraine into Russia proper. Now, maybe I'm just being small-minded and I'm not able to see the bigger picture, but... I see this as the only way Russia's security concerns regarding Ukraine can be put to rest. And I'm 
hyper-emphasizing Ukraine here. Uh, not Ukraine. I'm hyper-emphasizing Russia here. Because they're the one in the driver's seat. They're the conductor here. They've, they set the tempo. And everyone else has to play to their beat right now. So what Russia does, uh, essentially, it becomes the law of the land with regards to this conflict. So that's why I focus so much on Russia and not anyone else, really, because Russia's the main player here, even though it's Ukraine who's being invaded. The only way Russia's security concerns will be put to rest, in my mind, and again, I could just be small-minded on this, is it's going to be the total annexation of Ukraine. Because if Ukraine is a part of Russia, they can't join NATO, they can't join the EU, you, NATO can't put troops and weapons and equipment into a part of Russia without Russian approval. It shores up Belarus's southern flank, so you don't have to worry about your ally being in harm's way just for associating with you. And it makes the pre-existing border between Russia and NATO uh, that much more tenable. Because when you look at a map, you have, sure, you have the Baltic states, but you have Belarus and Kaliningrad. So there's like a very narrow land corridor between Belarus and Kaliningrad uh, that runs from Poland up to Lithuania and then to the Baltics. So there's a crisscross there. And you could easily cut off the Baltics through a swift armored brigade or paratroopers. It wouldn't take much for Russia to assert dominance over that area if that's what they needed to do. Now, they don't want to do that, as is evident by the fact that it took them eight years to come to blows with Ukraine over the violation and the constant. Uh, the violation of the Minsk agreements and the constant bombardment of the Luhansk and Donetsk regions. So Russia doesn't. We can safely say that Russia does not want conflict, although many will say otherwise. But if conflict were to happen, that's a much better situation to be in where Ukraine is not some unknown that threatens the security of your state. Instead, Ukraine is a part of the Russian state, and you can focus exclusively on your adversary, NATO. So, the only way Russia's security concerns regarding Ukraine can be put to rest is the total annexation of Ukraine. And so, I am of the belief that the war shall continue. So, how do I... how I think the war is going to continue... I think it goes as follows. And, well, I think this is going to be the most relevant part of the episode for the folks watching this after Monday. So basically all of you. <laughs> uh, because Russia is moving at such a breakneck speed. I'm, I'm pretty sure a solid quarter of what I've told you today is going to be outdated, obsolete, and old news by the time <laughs> Friday comes around. But I get, I'll just get into my speculation on how I think this is going to go and hope that I'm right. Because yeah, that's, that's the only way this sticks. Uh, I'll also state that I believe 
it is unwise to trust statements about Russian the Russian offensive being bogged down or grinding to a halt. I think it is un I think it's unwise to trust such statements because again, I'll remind all my lovely listeners, we're on day five. Uh, Monday today is day five of this war, and they're moving really, really, really fast, especially given that they're not doing much to the civilian population. They're moving ridiculously fast. That being said, I see the war playing out like this. So the troops coming from Crimea will continue their advance east to meet up with both the Russian forces in the Donbass, which, uh, as, as of my recording this, uh, I've already told you, has already been done. So that, I'm, I'm telling you, I, I, I can barely keep up. I can't keep up. I'm trying. But um, that's, I believe that that's going to happen, and it did happen. So I, I guess I'm right, but we'll just discount that because you have no way of verifying that I came up with that before this. Um, that's, they're going to move east, meet up with the Donbass, and the offensive force moving southeast from Kharkov. Those troops are going to meet up with the Crimean troops, creating a massive encirclement of the Donbass. The troops centered around Nizian, the Ukrainian troops centered around Nizian, will be encircled by the other salient moving west towards Kiev to back up the troops that have already made it to the city. Uh, these are Russian troops that are going to encircle Nizian and Ukrainian troops that are going to be encircled uh, are in the Nizian pocket, as I will call it preemptively. Kiev and Kharkov will be encircled as they are points of major resistance and it would be easier to cut them off and bypass them and essentially put them under siege, giving the option, as Russia currently has done so far, of surrendering and leaving, even, before they bombard whoever decides to stay. Then... After taking control of the west bank of the Dnieper River and encircling these points of major resistance, Russia will likely halt their advance again to close these numerous pockets that they will have made, uh, primarily around Kiev, around Kharkov, around Nizhyn, around Mariupol, assuming it hasn't already been closed by that point, and around the Donbass. These are the five major uh, pockets I see forming as of right now. Maybe there'll be more, but these are the ones I can see right now. And once they seize control of the West Bank, so once they control the other side of the Dnieper River, they'll stop, they'll regroup, they'll close these pockets, and once they've closed these pockets, they will essentially neutralize the vast majority of the Ukrainian army. Either by surrender, because they will ask for surrender, as they've done so far, even with uh, the Snake Island story where the Ukrainian troops on the island told them to go uh, fuck off. Uh, they were captured, not bombed, uh, so they're still alive. Well, at least that's what we're hearing. Again, 
interesting tidbit about rumors and war stories. But once they neutralize, once they once they close these pockets, they will neutralize the Ukrainian army either by surrender or destruction. And once the pockets in the Donbass and around Nizhyn are closed, um, I see Russia will likely resume their offensive. Their offensive. And I use Donbass and Nizhyn specifically because Kharkov, Mariupol, and Kiev are all cities. So those are sieges, and those are probably going to take longer. Donbass and Nizhyn are sort of pockets of land that can be taken. So I see those going down faster, especially once the Russians start outflanking and attacking the trenches from the rear in the Donbass. That's going to cause a collapse there. And once the Donbass is done, the People's Republics there are essentially done. Uh, that's That could be the end of the war if they want it to be, but maybe they'll send troops for the rest of the offensive. But once Donbass and the Nizian pockets are closed, Russia will move their troops to the west bank of the... Uh, the goodness, the Dnieper River, there we go. And they'll resume their offensive. And they will be rapidly pushing westwards towards the de facto capital of Ukraine, which is Lviv. A major city in the far west of Ukraine where lots of embassy staff from the United States and lots of people from the Ukrainian government have already fled to. So that's why I refer to it as the de facto capital of Ukraine right now. So they'll rapidly advance towards this city because that's going to be the next major strategic target since Kiev will already be encircled. This advance, I suspect, will be much faster than even the rapid gains we've seen so far as at that point, the Ukrainian army will have essentially ceased to exist. There, there'll also be likely another offensive in the south towards Odessa to take that major city. This is another major Russian-speaking area with lots of ethnic Russians living there. Um, so they'll take that with the minimal resistance of the absence of the Ukrainian army after these pockets are closed. And the reason I suspect it's going to be way faster is again because the Ukrainian military will have essentially ceased to exist. I mean, you're talking the troops in the Donbass are going to be encircled. The troops fighting in the north are going to be encircled. Everything else is going to be in garrisons in major cities where they're already fighting for their lives. What's going to be left? Because again, there are no barriers to protect them except maybe forests in western Ukraine because the mountains are on the wrong side of this conflict there. They're between Ukraine and the countries that they're trying to get to help them instead of between the rest of Ukraine and Russia. This is flatland. This is perfect territory for Russia's land doctrine, which is rapid mechanized warfare. So, they'll take Odessa, they'll rapidly push towards Lviv, and this second major advance... Uh, once it starts, will essentially mark the achievement 
of one of Russia's stated objectives, which is the demilitarization of Ukraine. Because, again, once they close these pockets, the Ukrainian military will have essentially ceased to exist. And so from there, the siege of, and dare I say the inevitable capture of, Lviv and maybe Odessa, not entirely sure if they'll put up resistance like Kharkov and Kiev did, but once they capture Lviv, that will mark the end of the war. Assuming Ukraine doesn't capitulate earlier, again, Russia is still coming to these peace talks. We'll see if something comes of that earlier, but... Once Russia takes Lviv, if it gets to this point, that's the end of the war. It's the end of the war. Uh, that's how I see the war going and progressing from this point forward. A couple of my predictions have already come to pass, but you have no way of verifying that listening to me. So I don't. I understand if you don't believe me when I say I expected them to link up the fronts from the south with the Donbass. So, we'll just see if the rest of my uh, imagination on how this is going to go comes to pass. Uh, so, I guess now we'll just turn our eyes towards home. Well, so that's America, for those of you who aren't living over here. As many interventionist busybodies want America to get involved in the war, like usual. The Biden administration has placed sanctions on Russia and Germany has stopped the certification process for the already completed Nord Stream 2 pipeline at a time when Germany is struggling to get natural gas. This is going to kill their government coalition. I can see it. That's something to look out for eventually. Because the government coalition just got there. So this is going to fester for a while. Well, Germany is still in the middle of winter. And maybe it'll take the next winter. Because a lot of these European countries, they've exhausted their supplies of natural gas this winter. Like, they canceled their long-term gas agreements with Russia. And that kind of really screwed with them once the prices started going up. And many countries started drawing on their natural gas reserves over the course of this winter. But with no new source of gas coming in, because you're, well, not, not enough gas coming in to store that you can put away for a rainy day. With this being the situation, next winter is going to be brutal for them. Especially since many of these energy prices from natural gas to crude oil, which is already at $100 a barrel. All these prices are set to rise. Especially with the conflict going on in Ukraine right now, which is causing them to rise even further. Now, the Ukraine conflict I don't see lasting for an incredibly long time. But it's something that's accelerating the trend. And the prices don't look like they're coming down so even at their current height that's still brutal for Europe because Europe doesn't produce its own energy uh, especially since they don't want to use coal but next winter 
if they don't have natural gas, either a steady supply or a lot of it stored up over the summer, people are going to freeze. People are legitimately going to freeze like we're in the 1800s. And that will kill the German coalition, uh, that I imagine. And any other coalition that enabled this to happen to them. But I focus on Germany specifically because they have a pipeline. They have a whole pipeline directly from them to Russia. Well, from Russia to them because Russia's the one with the gas. Um, they have Nord Stream 2. They can use it and they've chosen not to. So that I feel is going to really bite them later on. Uh, there have also been sanctions that have been placed on Russia. Uh, the sanctions, notably, does not impact Russian gas or food exports. Now, I brought up that Biden administration sanctioned Russia, but they haven't sanctioned Russian gas or Russian food exports. And we focus on those exports specifically because... Those are their top exports. Gas, well, energy in general, Russian energy, and Russian food. That brings in hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue for Russia. These two are unsanctioned. So, in essence, the sanctions that everyone's been talking about and hyping up for months now, and really really doubling down on as though it was going to be some sort of deterrence or even a, a means of fighting back, so to speak. These sanctions, which have been hyped up all this time, have shown themselves to be worthless. I mean, they they have nothing. It's nothing of substance in the eyes of Russia. I mean, what... How do you sanction Russia, but you don't sanction the gas and the food? I mean, I get it. That would just make the energy crisis in Europe worse. But sanctioning them in general isn't going to make the situation better either. It, it, this is... I don't like sanctions. Uh, I just see them as so backwards. In my eyes, they're like cancel culture as a foreign policy. It's like, if you don't like a country... Just leave them alone. Uh, but that's not the stance that other people take. They think it's our responsibility to do things when other countries do things we don't like. Um, but here, the sanctions mean nothing. Because to actually touch things that would make Russia feel pain would hurt us more. And us includes America because this current administration has sabotaged our energy production. We went from energy independent to being energy dependent. And we're getting oil from, of all places, Russia. Of all the places, we're getting energy from Russia. Now, again, I've said it before, that on its own is not necessarily a bad thing. But check this out. America has plenty of oil and plenty of natural gas. It, natural gas is a byproduct 
of getting oil from fracking. So we should not be having these problems. We are not Europe. We are not the same. America and Europe are not the same. There's this emphasis on the West, this, the West, that America may be a Western country, but we are not the same. We are endowed with riches beyond our wildest imagination up to and including incredibly fertile land that happens to be very well rivered. We have lots of minerals. We have lots of oil. We have lots of natural gas. We have lots of wood. We have, we, we have lots of fresh water. We don't need to be in this situation right now. But th thanks to really bad policy with regards to energy and economic policy, we are not dependent on gas and, well, oil imports from other countries when we were an exporter just last year. We were a net exporter last year at this point in time, and now we're beholden to the whims of global energy markets. And our energy prices, our gas prices are going up. I almost died when i saw the pump i i didn't get gas yet but i have to in a uh, probably tomorrow i saw that pump say 397 when it was 370 a week ago ah it's getting this is getting out of hand uh I live in Illinois. We we can't be paying California prices for our gas over here. Uh, California is an interesting case as well. They, unlike us in Illinois, they have oil in California, but they choose not to use it. So they're paying six, seven dollars a gallon. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. But here we are. We we have to pay this. Um. But anyway, these sanctions are worthless. But. Even still, there's talk of cutting Russia off from the SWIFT system, which is, this is a system that facilitates financial transactions between different countries. These transactions are based on the dollar. So removing Russia from this system would greatly complicate trade between Russia and other countries. It wouldn't make it impossible, but it would make it more difficult than it needed to be. And there are people genuinely cheering for, they're, they're cheering on this sort of intervention. And I'll say that I do not understand these folks. It's like, uh, in their eyes, America minding its own business and not getting into some conflict all the time. It's, it's like a crime to these people. I, I don't see what the problem is not getting involved in someone else's conflict. But they think we have a moral obligation to do these things. No. I disagree greatly. I mean, I saw this one survey. It showed that the less an American knows about where Ukraine is, the more likely they are to want to get involved. Now, that survey... Uh, in spite of the comedy that it is, um, that survey highlights sort of a problem we have with situations like these, because here, 
just like the Israel-Palestine situation, here you have another instance of Americans being, we're arguing with each other over whether or not to get involved over someone else's conflict. Someone else's conflict, and we're having debates and arguments here over what we should do. Ukraine is over four and a half thousand miles away. Four and a half thousand miles from New York to Lviv. And you haven't even gotten to the front line yet. Why are we even talking about this is where I come from. That, that, that's the question in my mind, not how much are we going to help the Ukrainians or what's an appropriate level of help and aid to give the Ukrainians. My question is, why are we even having this discussion? This has nothing to do with us. But alas, you again have instances of Americans being divided over someone else's conflict. And the positions have boiled down to two general camps. There is the we-should-help-Ukraine camp, who sees it appropriate to send them weapons and equipment. Uh, and then there's the we-should-stay-out-of-this camp, who wants America to finally sit one out. I mean, I myself maintain the superior stance that isolationism is the one true ideology and that this war has nothing to do with us. And by that, I mean it has nothing to do with Americans. It doesn't really affect us. I mean, even in spite of the gas prices, that's we can fix that ourselves by enabling people to drill for oil here instead of strangling them and making ourselves vulnerable in ways we don't need to be. That's a domestic issue, more than it is a foreign one. It's just that this conflict highlights the flaw of our current domestic economic policy. Uh, so there's that. But I make the distinction between Americans and America in this specific instance because we're gonna, gonna own up a little bit here. It was our government that overthrew the Ukrainian government in 2014 with the Euromaidan coup. It was us who continued to play around with the idea of Ukraine joining NATO. Oh, they're going to do it. Oh, we're, we're going to we're going to let them do it. It was us. It was the US who turned down Russia's pleas, requests and eventual demand that NATO stop expanding towards Russia even though we were the ones who promised not to do that when the USSR collapsed. And it was America that pushed the whole NATO can expand wherever it wants line, even though we had, and this is the wildest part of this whole situation, we pushed the NATO can expand wherever it wants idea, we pushed that line, even though we had no intention of letting Ukraine into NATO in the first place. So, that's the part that America played in this. So, we, I, I can't pretend that America had nothing to do with this. But I can clearly say that Americans have no stake in this. We have no horse in this race. Although a lot of people today are 
putting up posts saying that they support Ukraine and that they stand with Ukraine, not a single one of them are going to be found in those trenches. I'll just say that now. But, um, yeah, I, it, this has nothing to do with us. But taking into account our country's culpability in getting this crisis to where it is, this conflict has nothing to do with us. And I, I wake up every morning. I go to work. I come home. Nothing has changed for me. The gas prices have gone up. And they're probably going to keep going up. Again, that's a domestic issue. We could solve that ourselves. We don't, we don't need to do anything over there to solve gas prices here. But this has nothing to do with us. And a lot of the people that want us to intervene, this has nothing to do with them either. Because they're doing just fine. Everyone in America is just fine. The, the Ukraine crisis has not caused any change in the way we live our lives. It just has not impacted us whatsoever. So, again, accounting for, again, taking responsibility for our country's role in getting this to where it was, this crisis just does not affect Americans. We have nothing, this conflict has nothing to do with us. And so that's the distinction I'll make. That's the line that I will, that's the stance that I'll take. And it is what it is. It's not our job to defend everybody. I mean, if, if Ukraine falls, sucks to suck. It's sad, but that's the truth. It sucks to suck. It's not our responsibility to defend someone just because they're losing a war. It's not our job to put ourselves in harm's way just because the leader of an aggressor state happens to be someone that we don't like. And boy, do people over here have an unhealthy obsession with Vladimir Putin. At this point, Putin lives rent-free in people's heads. And that, that man is delinquent on a solid 8 million years of rent. Uh, and it, is, it shows right now. Right now, it's really showing. Because in my time, I have never seen such an obsession with one man. Even with Trump, there was quite the obsession over him from people who hated him. Even with Trump, people were not as fervent and dogmatic in their attacks on and attempted assassination of someone's character. And here I am thinking to myself, they don't even know this guy. What do they know about this guy? Like, all these people talking about Putin know literally next to nothing about him. Now, that's myself included. I mean, we know he's former KGB. All right. We know he thinks the fall of the Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. All right. Now, me personally, I'd like to counter with World War One. It, it created the circumstances led to World War Two, killed idealism, enabled the rise of various socialist ideologies. It, terrible. I believe World War One was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. But he believes so the fall of the Soviet Union was. 
All right, we know that about him. We know he's KGB. We know he believes uh, Soviet Union falling is the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. All right. Um, what else do we know about him? Well, we know he's the leader of Russia. Okay, there. That's another one. We know his name is uh, Vladimir Putin. All right, that's four. But uh, but what then? What, what do they know? They know nothing. We know nothing about this man. All these anchors on news channels, and you got you got Tim Pool and his cast. You got Steven Crowder and his cast. I love them. I watch them all the time. But and they're pretty good. They're sources of news. Uh, they're better than what I'll get on TV. I'll say that much. But you got Biden. You got senators like Ted Cruz. You got the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. You have all these people referring to Putin as though he were the devil when he's just a man. Now, he's a very smart man, but a man. Nothing more, nothing less. One day, he's going to be gone, and there will still be Russia. And someone new will take his place. Meanwhile, major news stations in Europe and America are, they've openly pulled out the propaganda machine in favor of Ukraine, while again painting Russia as the enemy, even though we're not the ones fighting. We, Ukraine's fighting, not us. But I digress. I digress. Whew. I guess I'll uh, take this moment to say that my predictions as to the order of Russia's former Soviet acquisitions have proven correct. From the Caucasus to Central Asia, right up to Ukraine, this the war has already caused, and we talked about this a little bit, it's caused a rise in the gas prices. Which will also, uh, as an unintended consequence from the people trying to sanction Russia, this is going to fill Russia's coffers. It's going to fill up their coffers. Because Russia, as a major energy exporter, makes money off of high energy prices. And when you have rising costs of fuel, that makes everything more expensive. Because industrialized farming requires tractors and lots of farming equipment, mechanized farming equipment, and they use, they guzzle gas. Modern farming uses up a lot of gas. Modern militaries use up a lot of gas. People who drive cars use up a lot of gas. Industry uses up gas. How How does it use up gas? Well, it needs electricity. Every house that has electricity needs a power plant to give it to them. France has nuclear. Germany's been decommissioning their nuclear. America, we have a, a bit of a mix, but we, we have a lot of coal and natural gas power plants. Then again, America's a very big place, so lots of trucks have to drive things around. And the same is true with many other countries. You have trucks driving things from big cities to big cities. So... When you have these gas prices going up, I mean, you have these oil prices going up, that means gas prices go up. And when gas prices go up, 
the cost of everything goes up, including food. So now you're, you're even going to get a situation where because oil and fuel prices go up, Russian food exports suddenly become competitive with everyone else's because the cost of producing food elsewhere has gone up due to the increase in gas prices. Because again, farming, modern farming, uses up lots of gas. So Russia is... I don't even know how to describe it. They're in a really good position. I mean, because with these rising prices, it's going to make the Europeans beg for renewed long-term gas agreements to sort of lock in before the prices go beyond what they can manage. Because they don't know when those prices are going to come down. They got to get the deal when they can, if they get the deal at all. And I think that they will, because... They're out of reserves. A lot of them are running really low on their natural gas reserves. And they cannot be caught dead next winter. Or else people will be dead. They have to get new gas. And the best place to get it, the easiest place to get it, is going to be from Russia. Especially since so far the pipelines in Ukraine are intact. So they're going to have to get new long-term agreements from Russia. And a lot of them are going to end up importing food from Russia as well. So what you're going to have is that by the end of this conflict, Russia's going to walk away from this a, a winner, a really big winner in more ways than one. So that's one takeaway from this. And I'll also say that, uh, uh, as a couple others have already said as well, but I'll say that this marks the end of the unipolar moment. Now, yes, China has already risen to challenge and even surpass the United States in some regards, particularly in industry. I envy their industry because I know we could have something similar here if we had the right policies in place, but we're kind of in a rough spot where we think that killing our energy uh, sector is a good idea, so... We have some work to do over here. But um, even though China has already risen to be a, a peer power to the United States, we were this war going on right now between Russia and Ukraine will be remembered as a definitive break between the post-Cold War unipolar era of the sole superpower and the return of the multipolar era of great powers, and that's powers plural. So it's not one power, it's not two powers, it's multiple. It's a multitude of powers influencing different regions and all having their own spheres of influence and their own interests that they pursue. Sometimes working together, sometimes working independently. But that's the era that we're moving into again. So this war will be seen as the definitive break between these two eras. And I guess it's a bit poetic, too, given that it was the fall of one Russian empire, the Soviet Union, that created the unipolar era to begin with. And now, it is a reborn and resurgent Russian empire, the Russian Federation, that has brought about 
its end. And only God knows where we go from here. But that is all I have for you today, my lovely listeners. Thank you for sticking around on this extended broadcast today on my geopolitical podcast. The world has changed. And it's going to keep changing. But we, as usual, are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade. God bless you if you're in Ukraine. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, Servus.